Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Let's dig in with episode one. Welcome to episode one of the Glass Houses podcast. Before we started this episode, we thought of a lot of topics and ideas that we want to go over, but we thought for the first episode, we'd just sort of dive in uh, with some of our personal stories, how we got into Billy Joel, what we've always loved about him, uh, some of our history and our personal um, experiences with concerts and the songs and things like that. So Jack, so how'd you come online with Billy? What's your entry point? Sure. I, I can't even remember when it started. I might have been about three or four years old. All I remember is I had... Uh, it's probably 84, 85, and I had a, a little brown Fisher-Price tape recorder, and somehow I ended up with an old TDK blank cassette with The Stranger on one side. And I think I got it because the Star Wars soundtrack was on the other side. My parents gave it to me, and I flipped the tape over, and I found The Stranger. And uh, yeah, I think it really just caught me. I just always remember listening to it. I don't remember a time when I wasn't. Looking back on it, you know, in retrospect, listening to it again, because I, I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, I always said it, the sound of his voice sounded like my dad and his friends hanging out on the porch. So it was very familiar mm -hmm. to me. Living in New York, uh, I really understood that he was from New York, too. So it sounded like it was somebody in my backyard. I always said when I moved out, you know, in pressure, when he says Channel 13, Sesame Street, I was like, well, yeah, that was that was PBS. That's you put on Channel 13, you watch Big Bird. You know, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. I used to go to my cousin's house out in Queens, and uh, he was a couple years older. He had a bunch of the records. The, everybody knew if Jack was sleeping over, we were going to listen to all the records. We'd start with Piano Man and go all the way through. You know, after that, you know, I got a little older, and uh, I got into the Beatles. I got into Jimi Hendrix, and then I got into progressive rock and some metal. And for a while, I really didn't listen to Billy Joel that much. And I'm 38 now, and uh, around 28, 29, yeah, I just kind of picked up the CDs and started listening to them again. And I forgot how much there was to it. As your memory of it fades, you forget all those nuances to the songs, and then they come back. But I really felt like, you know, where before, it felt like I was maybe listening to my dad and his friends have a conversation. Now that I was older, mm -hmm. and I knew more about what he was singing about, you know, I felt like now, this time around, I was part of the conversation. And it stuck with me a little more this, yeah. uh, this time. How about you? Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of go back. I'm 40. So I was born in 79 from the Detroit area in Michigan. And so when I was a year old, uh, my mom received a Christmas gift from my uncle in the form of glass houses on vinyl. I don't have too many memories of that age, but the one thing that I do remember is her playing that record. Mm. And it something about it just clicked with me right away. And I couldn't get enough of all the music my mom had and all the kids music that was out there at the time. Mm -hmm. That was the one album that I kept coming back to. And I always wanted to hear, you know, put on Still Rock and Roll to Me. I want to hear Glass Houses. And I'm like two years old. And that's all I want to listen to. And yeah. it probably wasn't until I was a year or two, a couple of years later, that I realized that there was several other albums of his <laughs> out there. And so as I grew up, I started nosing my way into the albums that had come out prior. And by the time Nylon Curtain and An Innocent Man came out, I was already like dedicated fan, eagerly anticipating anything new that came on the radio of his. Yeah. It's funny like that. I think when you're a little kid, you hear one album and you, it doesn't process to you that there are other albums to listen to, man. Once you fixate on it, that's it. You know, I mean, my parents. And that was it. That, 
Exactly. That was all there was to me. I'm like, that That was in my head. That was the only album in existence. <laughs> and I still come back to it a lot. I mean, I listen to music all the time. I mean, there's so much music that I love now. But yeah, for so many years growing up, that was the only thing that I knew. And so that developed my style for melody, my musicianship. Everything is rooted in that record because that was my foundation. Right, right. Let me ask you this. I was just thinking of this. Um, in your house, did, yeah. you, did your parents listen to the radio a lot or records and, and CDs? I do remember the radio quite a bit growing up as a kid. It's interesting. My dad really didn't listen to music, but my mom grew up a music fan. So I think she obviously saw my interest in music early on and encouraged it. I remember listening to a lot of local pop radio. And then there was a channel um, in Detroit. I think it was Channel 50. I don't even know what the call letters were, but Mm -hmm. they had a music video station. This was before MTV and cable and all that. Yeah. Radio and music videos, probably 82, 83, was when I really started to get deeper into music. Uh-huh. It's interesting. Yeah, I was, How about you? I was thinking about that because um, for whatever reason, my parents didn't like really play the radio in the house. You know, they, my dad would come home and he'd always play CDs and things. So, you know, yeah. it, it was just that funny thing where as a result, like I never understood for the longest time that there were singles. You know, to me, it was it was a whole album. You know, like we got Stormfront right. and it didn't occur to me that nobody else knew like when in Rome. I'm like, well, of course, what, what did you do for the next half hour of your life after we didn't start the fire? You know, you right. made it all the way to yeah. it. So it goes. And then your mom put something else on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So even though I did listen to radio, I my entry point was full albums, too. So yeah. I think that's probably part of what shaped me being an album guy. I get the purpose of singles and what they're about. They're to promote the record and, you know, it helps drive album sales and all that. But having listened to like Glass Houses on repeat, the whole album and the Nylon Curtain and all these albums, I think I just always preferred that experience to me than like, all right, here's the new single from Mm -hmm. Men at Work and now we've got Journey. (laughs) I think I always went back to preferring a full album. Yeah, yeah, sitting down and listening to the whole thing through. And, and you get a different sense of pacing that way, too, as a, as a listener. Yeah. Like just the rises and falls of it. A lot of times, back in the day, albums were sequenced with intention, and songs were put together on an album with intention. Yeah. So you may be right, going into sometimes a fantasy made sense with the right. flow of the album and the way the different keys and tempos, and it all made sense, and it was intentional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went I went back to, to vinyl, um in large part just to, to wean myself back off of typing songs randomly into Spotify or YouTube because, you know, now it's like, oh man, that's like everything's there. There's no more going to FYE and staring at the record out the cover and being like, what does right. this sound like? <laughs> right. I, I get the convenience of it. And, you know, with digital downloads and mostly streaming, when Pandora's box is open, you can't put it back in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's just how people consume it now. Yeah. And I get it. And the convenience of it's nice. I can travel across the country and still listen to 50,000 songs with the click of a button. Yeah. And that's great. But there's just something that just can't replace one, owning your own physical copy of something mm-hmm. and listening to it in its intended format. Plus, I'm a musician. I've got some songs that you can get on iTunes and Spotify and all that stuff. And I've seen what they pay people. <laughs> I, oh, I've yeah. seen these sales reports and I'm just like, all right, Ooh. another 50,000 streams and we're going to Taco Bell. Yeah. You know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> that's the reality of it. I mean, yeah. people aren't selling records anymore as it is, but you know, these companies for as great as services they provide, the artists 
you can't count on a penny because no. it's it's really not there. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really wild. Well, I'll I'll tell this story now. I guess um, it's yeah. not, maybe not too much of a story, but just you know, as we're talking about getting into it, um, you know, the one album that I had the the pleasure of, of buying when it really came out was uh, was River of Dreams. My one, my one chance to really anticipate. Oh my God, Billy Joel's coming out with a new album. You know, especially at, at that point, I had gone my formative years with stuff that had already come out, and it was like, wow, that you know, this is going to be my album. And uh, by that time, yeah. I was uh, living in a suburb outside of Philadelphia, and my cousin came down, the one that you know had all the records. We were both uh, in junior high and high school at that point, and I just remember it was like, I think we planned that he would come over that week because the album was coming out and it was like, all right, mom, nine o'clock, we're going to the mall. We got our money. We got $20 each. We're getting this album, you know, and yeah. we put it on and it was like, wow, new Billy Joel. I think we had read about it in the newspaper ahead of time. Yeah. And, and oh, it's mm-hmm. going to be this, it's going to be that. Oh, okay. You know, we'll check it out. And, and I remember that year it was like every kid, every birthday party you went to, somebody got that CD, like <laughs> either CD or cassette. Right. Like, we were at like the, you know, the roller skating rink and somebody was open in there eh, there's river of dreams you know yeah so. oh yeah <laughs> the first time i consciously remember anticipating an album like that was mm-hmm. stormfront for me That was the first one I remember, the hype leading up to it. I think September or October of 1989, and mm-hmm. it was the same thing. I was like, all right, got you know, got the money. <laughs> can we go to Harmony House after you're done with work so I can pick it up? That was the local chain in Michigan. And yeah. Tuesday, have to go to the record store, and the new album's out. And it's it was just such an exciting, and putting it on for the first time, that's such an experience. First song, and you're like, oh. and yeah, there, there's just nothing like it. That was fun. I mean, Fantasies and Delusions, was I working? I can't remember. When, what year did that come out? 2002? 2000, uh, 2001, September. 2001. Yeah, Same week was... as the uh, the Essential collection. Right, okay. Yeah, I started working at Tower Records like right around then, but I wasn't working there yet. But yeah, I was in college. I remember going and getting it. But, you know, it was the classical album, and it wasn't quite the same. But, man, I went out that day and got it, too, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When did you first see him live? I saw him live on the River of Dreams tour. Uh, saw him in Nassau Coliseum. My whole family went. Uh, nice. It was this was uh, it was quite the event, man. My first that was my first real concert. I saw the Temptations in like a Atlantic City uh, casino nightclub. So I was like, oh okay, cool. Oh, sure. I guess that's sort of what it's like. And you're like, whoa, you know, we had we had nosebleeds, man. We were like two rows from the back of it. Um, mm-hmm. non-Billy related, but there's this great story we all still tell where, uh, my father was a cop, was a retired police officer at that point. So, you know, we're all the way in the back and there's like a row of us. We're all like, you know, ranging from maybe nine to 13, 14 years old. And this guy just walks behind us, sits in the back row and lights up this huge joint and it's just puffing away. <laughs> <laughs> and like the oldest kids are like kind of leaning back and trying to inhale. 
And my mom's like, yeah, what do yeah. you do? Watch the concert. Don't even breathe. Just just look forward. Just look forward. And my father had to turn around, flash his bad be bad be like, come on, just just go somewhere else, you idiot. Like this there's, there's fifteen right. kids sitting here. The kids you know? here. Yeah. yeah, but it was a Nassau Coliseum hometown show. And um oh, yeah. I remember because I saw him in, and I've seen him in Philly a couple of times, like he talked. He talked a lot. He told a lot of jokes. You know, he yeah. was running around, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my first show. How about you? My first Billy show was my first show ever. Um, and that was um, February 1990, uh, the Stormfront Tour uh-huh. at the uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills, which was in Michigan, just outside of Detroit. It was my parents, my sister, um, my best friend at the time, and a, a few other people. It was like seven or eight of us. It was a whole bunch of us. Mm-hmm. Same thing. We had the nosebleed seats. And <laughs> I remember the stage it was interesting because the stage was like bare, like yeah. no piano, no drums. Huh. Everything was underneath it. Oh wow! And and when the show started, they had these little trap doors, and everything came up. Huh? So that was yeah. So that was really interesting. And I just remember, I remember wanting asking my mom to let me see him on the bridge tour when I was six, but mm-hmm. she's like, "You're too young. You're still too young." <laughs> yeah. And so I remember getting to go that day. I was in fourth grade. And just, I was just in heaven. I mean, it was just such, to see this band live and just how good it sounded and never having been to a basketball arena before. So just the the sheer bigness of it all, you know, right. it was just a lot to take in, you know, for your first show. And, and um, yeah, gosh, I just remember it was, it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, I, I, you know, I, I should go back and I'm sure I can find the set list. But I remember that what I didn't know was going to happen was that people were dancing. I remember like he he really uh, sequences it so that like, about three quarters of the way through it's like a dance party. I was like, wow! So that's what yeah. the concert's like. It's not you're not just sitting down and listening to these songs. I remember girls right. were like dancing in the aisle. We're like, oh man, let's let's go down and dance with those girls. Like, you know, let's go do it. You yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even to this day, the last mm-hmm. the last you know third of the the show is just hit after hit after hit up 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 and yeah. just high energy just to close it down yeah, yeah it's when i put together sets for the bands i'm in like that's that's the template i use you know you hit them a little you slow it down talk a little bit like i'm i'm always like yeah at the end of that that uh, that set or that show man it's got to be hit 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 you know just go right into every song keep that momentum going mm-hmm. and I, yeah. you know that's that's where it came from it really did that's great man yeah. that's awesome yeah i talked earlier about videos i um i you know my early exposure to Billy Joel videos, when did you remember first like actually seeing a video or seeing what he looked like in the band and all that? Yeah, well, I must have been, you know, trying to figure this out, I guess, 89, because uh, we didn't have MTV. But uh, mm-hmm. somebody, I think my aunt um, had uh, the fabled double VCR in the 80s, and they rented the, uh, you know, volume one, volume two and Stormfront videos. And they taped yeah. them for me. And then it was like, I... Those, you know, the band looks sunburned by the time that that tape got retired, man. I just watched that every single day. You know, like remember you had like your one yeah. episode of Ninja Turtles or something you watched 20 minutes. That right. was no, I was like, all right, we're putting on Billy Joel now, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took, took me a while to figure out which ones. Um, I think a lot of the Glass Houses videos 
Yeah, most of the Glass Houses videos, those were just like on a soundstage, and that was probably what the yeah. band really looked like. You maybe ride off for Lena. He gave it like the bug mm-hmm. eyes. He came up from uh, from underneath the piano. Yeah, you know, I yeah. didn't know he had a mini Moog at that point. I didn't know who Rick Wakeman or Keith Emerson was yet. And later, you connected those right. dots back, and you're like, "Yeah, hey, he had one too." You know, <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, I, I would just watch those, and that that was the sequence to me, which was you know really out of order of when they came out, um, because it was like you know, Piano Man. He recorded that clearly in the '80s. Um, yeah. tell her about it was there and then like it would do Los Angelinos and everybody loves you now with the, the, I guess from the songs in the attic promos yeah I was always curious with those because that was kind of my early like when I really got deep I mean I remember videos as a kid like the first video I think I ever saw was Uptown Girl mm-hmm. but I remember with the video album one and two when I first got my hands on those as well and um, did you see, did you have the version where uh, it was like a picture book and one would like, it would move away and they would, they would turn the page? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So somebody really put their thought into how they were, you know, sequencing it. So I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, it's frustrating even when you go online now. Um, I mean, when I picked up the essentials on DVD, probably 2002, 2003. I was disappointed that, like, you know, the animated version, the animated beginning of Pressure isn't there. Uh, when right. you go on, this is interesting, and I think that there must have been a reason they did it, but the Big Shot video used to have the dramatic, you know, the, the, the stage parts with the girl just, just acting like a fool and putting the, putting yeah. the, cracking the egg and putting it in the glass and, and swirling it and then, yes. like, going, ah, oh, and she remembers what she did. And now it's right. just the version where they mime to it. If you go online, yeah. you go on like Billy Joe Vivo, which is cool because now I, for me, it's like I see like the the rest of that that I never saw before, you know. Right, right. But I was like, well, what right. happened to that, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Once they put out the DVD, because the sequ- there's the bonus tracks like James and Goodnight Saigon tagged on at the end of it, but yeah. it's actually the exact same running order as Volume One and Two, right? On the DVD, mm-hmm. but they did make some changes, like yeah. which I found like interesting too, because. On the Glass Houses, especially the Glass Houses videos, I know for sure you may be right, still rock and roll to me, sometimes a fantasy, and all for Lena. The vocals are live. Yeah, yeah. On the original video versions. And Mm -hmm. he's, even though the music is the recorded versions, his vocal take is live. Mm -hmm. And so it, it gives it a completely different feel than you know than the album versions and i i I always wondered why those were you know done that way yeah i wouldn't be surprised if um if it had something to do with maybe i should have thought of this before (laughs) we went live so to speak but i remember reading something somewhere in like an audio forum about how you know saturday night live the musical bands never really sound that good and it has to do with going through television like you're not playing this through your stereo you know, it's getting broadcast right. and this and that. I don't know. Maybe it had something to do with like trying to mix it differently because those songs weren't made for it. But it was mm. just, uh, I think it was just Glass Houses because when we would go back and, yeah. and, and try to play something and we would, you know, sometimes I would do something based on uh, what was, what I remember. And I realized I remembered it from the video, not necessarily the recording. Well, stuff yeah. like that. Like the big one is like, you know, I think in sometimes the fantasy, he's like, bup, 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 you better, baby, but believe me, you know. <laughs>
which yeah, which yeah, always yeah. changed around anyway. You know, he did Bebop Alula, he would say other things, but that was, you know, that was such a, it must have been such a conscious thing to do it differently because he, he says it, you know, you see him do it in the, uh, in the video too. You know, he's yeah. on camera when he says it. Part of me wonders too, is if he, you know, I know he's always spoken about how he's never been comfortable doing videos and he prefers playing live. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I wonder if too, this could have just been part of that where he's like, I want to make it feel as live as I can, even though it's a promotional video. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm totally way off base, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cause by the time the nylon curtain videos came around, um, it was all just straight album tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Forward. He had relinquished or been reined in whatever the case was. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they said yeah. about, um, maybe this is uh, related, but you know, in the Blues Brothers if you watch, you know, when you go back and watch it they had to uh, they had to use the actual, like, audio tracks from Aretha Franklin and James Brown because they just, they never did the, they never did it twice the same way that they couldn't, right. there was no syncing on that you know, they, whatever they yeah. sang on set is what, you know, made the album and made the movie you know. R- so, right, you know, right. Yeah. I think, you know, and I think that, you know, his, his aversion to videos in that way, I think, speaks to something I, I was thinking about recently that I think really keyed me into him early was, you know, I think he has, uh, he, he, he gives you more of a sense of vulnerability, I think, than a lot of other artists. If, if you key into that, it really speaks to you, you know. It doesn't take long, even as a kid, to dig between the lines of something like I go to extremes and... And so it goes even like, you know, you didn't understand what was happening, but like something about it, even as I got older and, you know, you start listening to Beatles and Hendrix and those are the big ones I got into after that. And even, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, you know, there was no one else that like seemed to really, you know, let their guard down like that. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, too, is, you know, he has still has that tough guy persona. And I, I think that that sense of tension really made a difference where like he's letting his guard down, but he's like, but I swear to God, if you if you screw with me on this, I'm going to knock you one, you know, (laughs) I'm going to knock you out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. mess with me. Yeah, like it's not like emo where they're completely like, oh man, here are my emotions, take my lunch money. It's like, yeah, I feel like that, but I'll fight you about it, you know? <laughs> You're right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So, I mean, speaking of the videos and, uh, you know, just the fact that we you, you know, used to be able to see the band in that. Um, you, well, you've seen Lords of 52nd Street, right? The. Yeah, I have. Fortunately, um, my work used to take me out to New York um, quite a bit, and I was lucky to get to see them a time or two out there. And uh, they actually did a one-off show in the Seattle area last year. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I made the trip out to see them. And my gosh, it was like closing your eyes and watching, you know, listening to Billy Joel. I mean, David Clark, who's the front man, does an incredible Billy Joel, but the band, it's, you feel like you're listening to a live show from 82 or 78 or something like that. It just sounds so much like Billy Joel. I mean, it's got the energy. Yeah, I was blown away. Have you seen the Lords? I saw them once uh, in New Hope uh, outside of Philly uh, in 2017, so two years ago. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I really had the exact same feeling about it. And, you know, going in, I didn't know what to expect. You know, you always hear stuff about, you know, well, well this Lords especially, but, you know, you hear about other like classic bands, you know, or lineups that, that went, oh, what's difference, you know, and it's, it sounds so different. And uh, yeah. I had I had organized everyone to go. I think it was like ten or twelve of us that went. So I was the guy calling everybody, getting the tickets, getting everybody there. And you know, it was one of those things where 
by the time it was time to go, I was like, I, I guess it's going to be cool, you know, whatever. It's not really Billy up there. And then right. I went and I was like, oh, my God, like this was worth every penny. You know, not only does it sound so much like the album and not only like the album, it's just the feel, if not the notes. Yeah. And then I went, oh, my dude, I am in this tiny club. Like I can see everything they're doing. All the drum parts, yeah. I couldn't figure out, like Rosalinda's eyes and stuff where he has the brush, oh, Liberty yeah. has the brush in his right hand. I was like, yep. oh, that's how he does it. I'm, I'm, I'm watching it happen, you know. Uh, yeah, this, the sound yeah. it was amazing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, and that's, you know, when you realize it's like only those guys are going to have that feel. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like, I think, you know, Chuck Berger, he's a great drummer, but he's going to interpret the Billy Joel songs his way. He's not copping what Liberty's doing, so he's doing putting his own spin on the songs. But when you go and listen to the Lords and see them, you're like, you're hearing the hands and the mind and the heart that went into those records, and it just clicks. It's like, wow, that's that's what made those records so good. Yeah, and and even live, I mean, you know, uh, Liberty has such a a unique sense of like swing to the way he plays where he's almost off time, but he's definitely not. So you can hear him sort of waver, but he never does it yeah. in a way that creates tension. Like I've seen, you know, in small clubs and stuff, I've seen a bad drummer where it's like the, he goes yeah. into a fill and you're like, Oh man, he's not going to make it. And it's not a not good tense feeling. You know, it's bad feeling attention mm. with Liberty. It's like, wow, he is, he's really playing with that downbeat, but you never feel like he's not going to hit it. It, it was really interesting right. and it was really actually right. in a weird way just rejuvenating like i just felt good like two or three days after actually like seeing it live and seeing it up close yeah, yeah the the energy he puts behind the way he plays it's just like you said when liberty and those guys were in the band you know the songs were always faster than the album versions live they were they just were but yeah. never to the point where it was frantic but it just ticked it up just enough bpm to give it that drive that really translated some of these songs into like these big live settings, you know, that were, you know, written when they were still playing clubs. Yeah. Hearing, I mean, even uh, Richie Canada, the way he plays saxophone, I've, you know, I spoke with other saxophone players and they talk about, you know, he gets those big brassy overtone sounds, you know, they're like, they can't always do that. And I was like, well, why don't you just play it? Just play it like that. He goes, because you're not supposed to be able to get that sound out of that kind of saxophone. You know, he's doing that thing. I think he holds it. Uh, he holds the valve half down or something. And it and it rings yeah. out in this rear, you know it's very specific it rock way. You know, I think like Clarence Clemens is. Yeah. You know, he's like one of the only other guys who who even comes to mind that like even kind of was in that neighborhood. Right. Of the way he could just, he has so much control, but it just like pushed it and just cut through and just had such a, mm, just such a nice grit to it that yeah. just. Yeah, and you know, you really get the feeling like nobody's going to do that but a guy that grew up, you know, and played, you know, came of age in the 70s and like that's what you did and that's how you played because uh I mean, when you, when you look at guys like that, man, they didn't go to music school. They were they were out there playing it. That's how they learned it and it's such a different yeah. it's such a different feel people that that learn like that. I don't think one's better than the other necessarily, but you can always tell, you know, those different guys, I think. And you know, see see yeah. those old like war horses up there, man. It was it was really it was a special night. I haven't made it back. I'm always playing a gig or something when they come through, but uh, yeah, I can't wait to go see them again. And if any of you out there um, aren't hip to them, so they they're called the Lords of Fifty Second Street. So basically, it's Liberty DeVito on drums, Richie Canada on saxophone, 
Russell Javers on the rhythm guitar. And then you have David Clark fronting the band on piano and keyboards and vocals and everything. And he's got his own uh, tribute band called Songs in the Attic. And uh, they're a great Long Island Billy Joel tribute band and uh, a host of other great musicians as well. And they just really do the material justice. And with Liberty, Russell and Richie as the core unit of the band, it really it's really something to see. So, uh, yeah, if they come near your area, I would definitely get on that for sure. Yes. Yeah, not those tickets up. So we both have stories about meeting Liberty DeVito, but uh, I guess this is a good time to tell mine because I actually uh, interviewed him uh, before the show where I saw him. I was working for a newspaper and I saw they were coming. I'm like, you know what? I'm going for it. And uh, so I never actually met him, met him, but I did have the opportunity to talk with him on the phone. And that was really, really fun. Yeah, I just I reached out to them on Facebook. I was like, "Hey, can I can I talk to Liberty, please? Maybe you know." And they're like, "Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, give me your number. He'll call you." And the number came through. You know, it wasn't blocked or anything. Like, here's the number, and you, hello, yeah. this is Liberty. You're like, holy, yo, man, it's him. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I can't remember if I told him early on that I was a drummer too, but dude, he just blasted. You could hear the smile on his face for starters. You know, he was just happy to talk, and. um you know, so I, I've I've had the opportunity to interview you know some a couple of legacy musicians, and you always really try to um, balance talking about their classic work and their new work because you know some of them get real sensitive about that, like they don't want to talk about the old albums; they want to talk about what they're into. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, we we talked about the, the Slim Kings and and stuff like that too. But you know, he was just really happy to just like sit back and like tell some stories. He was. Um, I remember him telling me, and, and I, I thought this was great too. Like. The way he described it, some of his drum parts, he was like, yeah, Summer Highland Falls. I was dating a girl that was into Joni Mitchell, so I played the beginning of uh, Help Me. I think I'm falling at the beginning of that just to impress her. You know, he goes, oh, Only the Good Die Young. That's Up From the Skies by Jimi Hendrix. I just copped that thing. It's like, really? Wow. Yep. Just keep talking, man, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. So, yeah, so uh, he and I have an interesting backstory. I lived in Florida for a number of years in the Orlando area. I was going to school for recording engineering and whatnot. So I was uh, living down there and uh, being a drummer as well. Mm -hmm. I followed his career and what he was doing. And I knew he had released a, um, a book and a tape called off the record, which is actually really cool. It's out of print now, but it was uh, 11 Billy Joel songs where he would demonstrate how to play them and talk about them. Mm -hmm. And then the following track would be, the songs with the drums taken out of the mix so you can play along to it. It's really great. And I had gotten this probably 1990, um, the cassette version, which I promptly wore out. <laughs> and um, by the year 2000, they had released it on CD. Yeah. And so I had ordered one from Liberty's website and it came autographed. So I'm like, oh, wow, that's really cool. So I <laughs> ordered it and, and it came in the mail and it was addressed Winter Park, Florida. I was like, wait. I live in Winter Park, Florida. <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> and familiar enough with his signature, I could tell that the return address was in his handwriting. I'm like, okay, so he addressed this himself. So does he live in town? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was like trying to put it together. I'm like, this is crazy. And he had a contact form on his website. So I'm like, if Liberty lives in my town, I got to reach out to him. <laughs> I may never hear back from him, but I got to, I got to try it. Yeah. You, know? you got to give that a shot. So, so I found a contact thing on his website and sent off an email and it was just fairly shortened to the point, but just more of a, you know, thanks for all the music kind of thing and mm -hmm. sent it off to the interwebs and figured that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah. And about, you know, week, week and a half later, 
I get an email in my inbox and it's mm. from Liberty DeVito. Wow. And I'm like, wait, this is not happening now. <laughs> so I just you know, click open the email and, and it was a pretty short response, but it was a response nonetheless. And it was more of a like, Hey, you know, what kind of music are you into? He's like, well, you know, thanks for the nice message and all that. And he asked me one short music related question like that, but it was just enough to where it made it kind of okay for me to respond to him. Yeah. You know, so he kind of inv- invited a response essentially. And I was, after I came down from cloud nine, the <laughs> fact that I'm now engaging in conversation with my favorite musician, right? I you know, had a you know response to him and asked him a question in return. And then a day or so later, email back from him. Mm. And this just started this dialogue back and forth over email that, lasted a couple a month or a couple months or a couple weeks or whatnot and Uh we just kind of back and forth just kind of talking music talking about billy joel and talking drums and things like that and um he was talking about a band that he used to play or that he was playing with at the time in orlando called the funk club Mm -hmm. it was um him hammond player named doug bear charlie champ from hall and oats on the sax Uh a bunch of incredible musicians This was the band that he was playing with when he wasn't on the road with Billy. Mm -hmm. And so he was talking about that band. They were just finishing up a record. And he's like, would you ever want to come and check out a rehearsal? (laughs) And I I just was like, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. (laughs) You know, what do you say to that? And he's like, no, you're not like a crazy stalker or anything like that. Oh, yeah, I don't have to worry about (laughs) anything. Right. I'm like, no, it's cool. It's it's cool. It's cool. Now inside I'm freaking out like. Is this really about to happen? Yeah. And he's like, what are you doing Thursday morning? We rehearsed kind of early. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm free now. <laughs> yeah, right. Whatever is getting canceled. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, all right. He's like, we rehearse over at my place. Come on by at like 1030 on Thursday. And if you can't find it, give me a call. Right. But uh, I'll see you then. <laughs> wow. And that was that. And I spent the next four days going like, all right, how do I not blow this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do I, I, I need to be cool, be cool, you know, yeah. and just e- eagerly anticipating this meeting. Thursday rolls around and I drive up to the house and sure enough, Liberty answers the door. He's yeah. like, come on in. <laughs> and, you know, brings me into the house and um, his wife at the time was in the other room, introduced me to her yeah. and say hello, uh, hello. And he's like, hey, the band's getting set up in my office. He's like, come on in, I'll introduce you. Uh-huh. Walks me in, introduces me to the guys in the band. And he's like, have a seat. He takes a chair and sets it down right next to his floor, Tom. And he's like, is this good? I'm like, this will do. <laughs> <laughs> this will be just fine. Yeah, this, this, I so, guess this is okay, you know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's just the best you got. Yeah. <laughs> and so I sit down and they start running through a couple tunes. And, and I remember after the first song or two, he's like, so what do you think? <laughs> and I'm like. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds really good. Yeah. This is pretty amazing. So I sat there and hung through the rehearsal and we just struck up a friendship as as the weeks and months went along from there and it grew into me uh, doing some work with them. I worked with the Funk Club for a while, just kind of helping them out with gigs. And mm-hmm. I built and ran his website that he used to have back in the day at the time. So uh-huh. I spent about four or five years running his website and oh, wow. just 
yeah, so we just built this really nice like personal and business relationship that uh, you know we had for quite a few years, and the business side of it kind of went away as the Billy thing went away. Um, but mm-hmm. we've uh, we've stayed in touch to this day, and you know, I mean, you yeah. always figure you're going to meet somebody like that, and it's going to be a story. You know, it's like oh wow, this you know this brush with something, and you know, to find out that uh, that he's that personable, and 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 he just becomes a friend. That that's you know, I mean that that speaks volumes. I think. You know, talking about, you know, meeting the, you know, one of your idols and, and uh, you know, think about all the songs they were on. I guess this is a good time then to, you know, kind of talk about what some of our favorite songs have been over the years. And I think a good way to do it is I think we got to split this up in two parts and be like, all right, what's, what's your favorite off like greatest hits and what's your favorite like deep track? Ooh, that that's a tricky one. The hit one kind of depends on my mood and depends on the day. Yeah. I would say hit wise, I would go with... At this moment, Allentown. Yeah. I just love the production of that song and just the way it moves and just... It's an interesting because the piano and the acoustic guitar, I love the way those two work together mm-hmm. on that. And so I'm going to go with Allentown for my hit of the moment. Okay. That's what do you got? Well, you know, just speaking of Allentown real quick, that that one always did uh, the production on that was just so different from so many of the other songs and, you know, kicked off the album that had a little bit of that late Beatles feel. But yeah, Mm -hmm. that oh, that one always hooked me. And those those two bridges were just amazing. Like as a kid, just, you know, I can really just just built tension inside. The way it built. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, um, I teach uh, drum lessons on the side. And uh, that's actually one of the first songs I teach kids because I teach them. uh, I, I try to talk about how. Uh, your bass drum has to line up with the bass guitar but also the vocals and it's such a good example because it's the, those uh, you know what I mean it just it, it hits it just so perfectly that uh, I end up listening to that yeah. one a lot for that reason that's, yeah and you know it's real quick you know that's one thing that going back to the Lord stuff and that's that's one of the things to me which is why like especially Liberty and Doug were so important to Billy is the way they well, the way the entire band served the song, mm-hmm. like Doug was Billy's left hand and he just knew just the right phrasings and the right notes to play underneath what Billy was doing yeah. on the left hand. And Liberty, in an age of flashy drummers and crazy fills and over the top stuff, he serves songs like nobody else. Yeah. It gives it exactly what it needs, no less, no more. It's just right. Yeah, I think um, one of the best examples of that is... Uh... Uh, the songs in the attic version of uh, Miami 2017 where you hear you know all those great fills man do they fit perfectly and it's just clearly the second part of the conversation Billy says something and Liberty responds with this fill and when you go into the yep. they're waiting at the batter you know just the way that like just drives it home perfectly it's... the boats were waiting at the batter the union went on so um you know I, I was i was thinking about this and i was i was almost gonna say scenes from an italian restaurant but it feels like that's one that you have to say you know but yeah i think it's moving right. out I think it's like, it's my favorite groove. I love like the slight, the slight bit of aggravation he has when he sings it. 
you know, yeah. going back to like what you heard in Brooklyn, it was like somebody was yelling at somebody down the street, and that that's what right. it sounded like. Um, yeah. I always loved what is it, the alto sax, just the the timbre of that. Da, 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 yes. da, you know, it was Soprano. a real cool feel. Um, yeah. The motorcycle in it, you know, when you're a kid, it gives you something you can really visualize, you know, when you're yeah. you're still like kind of balancing out your senses. The fact that funny I, enough, mm-hmm. that is actually are you talking about at the end? Yeah. So come to find out that is actually Doug Stagmeyer's Corvette. That's right. I do remember as soon as you, I remember reading that somewhere. Didn't yeah. Liberty like record yes. it on like a cassette recorder? They basically, <laughs> yeah. So they basically, this is while they were doing the Stranger record, they yeah. taped a cassette recorder to the exhaust <laughs> and, and just peeled it out down the road. <laughs> and that, and that's what made the record. Yeah. <laughs> interesting now did you when you were like growing up listening to it did you think that was a car or a motorcycle the peel out made me think car yeah but the but the engine i couldn't quite i was kind of on the fence but i think it was the peel out that made me think it was a car yeah i don't know where i i just started thinking it was a motorcycle because i remember so vividly as a kid seeing my driveway you know like because i could see like billy like throwing up his head like ah move it out you know and then he walks yeah. out my back door and gets into the car yeah 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 <laughs> but uh, yeah that's i think that's probably my my favorite big hit is moving out. How about deep cuts? Where are you at there? Uh, sleeping with the television on, I think all day long. You and I are in the same page. Yeah, yeah. That was mine. That's mine. <laughs> I think that one's going to grow. I think that's going to be like some something that like just crops up over the years. Like it's going to somehow like weasel its way into the history books. Um, I know a couple other people I've met that uh, that they've they've dropped that one. Even like non like yeah. huge fans have been like, yeah, I heard this one though. You know, I'm like, yeah, man, that's the one. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, something about it. And I love that like the guitar, David Brown and Russell Javers on the especially on the Glass Houses record. They are playing such interesting counterparts to each other yeah. throughout that entire album. But sleeping with a television on, especially, it's just, it's such an interesting arrangement and the guitar parts and yeah, just the whole tune. I've always loved it, but that's mm-hmm. one that was never a single that just, I always come back to it. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I was almost surprised I wasn't because it has such a good groove on it. And it's funny when you get older and you, and you realize, you know, what Billy Joe is uh, channeling or mimicking, you know, whatever you want to call it. But he always says he was imitating. So it's cool, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's, right, such, it's right. such an Elvis Costello song, even with the like the Farfisa and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I love how it breaks into that. Uh, I don't even know what to call that beat in the middle, that that sort of like double snitting. You know, the bridge, the bridge beat is like yeah. it opens up so much and it tightens back up and things like that. It's they really yes. that's a lot of stuff packed into that song and it never gets overwhelming. Just even that bell no. sound that comes in. That's like so off kilter uh, during the Farfisa, during the organ solo. It's got like that. Um, yes. Yeah, that's the- yeah, there's a little... It's the same, like, as that's going on with um, You Were the One. It's the same... S- sound bell setting, keep- yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's such an interesting thing like that because it happens for like what five seconds in the song, and it just and it's actually it. like it's kind of off the beat, but it fits so perfectly. It just pops and and then leaves again, you know, little stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And what's interesting too is that song. Um, the seventies and eighties were the golden age of the the fade out. Yeah. Where, like every song had a fade out. Right. You know, these days there's a lot of hard stops at the end, but mm-hmm. this this song has a hard stop, which is one of few at the time which is another unique thing to it yeah trying to think which one what another one would be well angry young man i guess james i think yeah angry young man yeah i think yeah pretty allen town so there's a few for sure but but like the big the big hits of his usually fade out yeah that's true that's true yeah you know, like sometimes the fantasy went on for an extra minute after the the record, the album version. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh man, I found yeah. that on forty five. I forgot I had it because I probably yeah, yeah, bought yeah. it before. I think I bought it before vinyl came back. So you know, you would go somewhere and just snatch up a bunch of records. And I remember mm-hmm. putting it on, being like, "What in the hell is going on now?" Like you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that guitar solo just goes. It's it's great. <laughs> funny to me about that is like why was that the single version yeah. <laughs> not that it's bad but it's just like it's funny you're gonna have the single version be like 45 seconds longer and it's just continuing the jam at the end right which is i always i was like oh that's that's an interesting choice yeah it comes to this like ungodly halt he's screaming you know he's doing this uh really like obscure ringo reference in it you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> blisters on my fingers yeah 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 that's like um, getting off Billy for just a second. Did you ever hear like the eight minute yeah. version of uh, Born in the USA? No, I haven't heard that. That's yet. like it's kind of the same thing. So when they recorded that, a lot of those were like one or two takes. So if uh, it's on YouTube now, um, like Born in the USA, that fade out, they just jammed it out. So like there's a whole bunch of fill, really? jump fills and stuff wow. in there. But yeah, that's just how they record. And then they just, you know, rode the fader at the appropriate time. Right. And that was it. Yeah. You know, it really makes you wow. wonder what was actually going on in the studio. You know, like what, you know, what mm-hmm. were those sessions really like? Um, you know, you could read about them a little, but I guess we'll you know yeah. you never really know. There's there's a good book. I don't know if you you're hip to the Phil Ramone book that came out about 10, 15 years ago. It's called Making Records. Oh yeah, no, I'm not. Well, yeah, yeah, it's really good book, and it talks a lot about a lot of the stuff he's done over the years. And yeah. there's a couple chapters about Billy, and it it has some fun stories about their approach to doing records and yeah. how he worked with the band in the studio. And you know, we'll dig a little deeper to the Phil Ramone stuff mm-hmm. down the road. It's really interesting how, you know, he's was another integral part of the band at the time, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. He's he was the other ingredient that really I mean, without Phil Ramone, you're never gonna have Liberty and Doug and Russell and Richie on records. Yeah. Cause think about it, the stranger, George Martin wanted to produce him, but he's like, Yeah, I want to produce you, but I don't want your band. Right. And Billy's like, Well, <laughs> you either get me in the band or you get nothing. Yeah. And Phil Ramone was the guy who's like, I get it, your band is great, I can make it work. Right. 
and that sent things off. Yeah, there's um, I, I was watching a, a, a an interview with Phil Ramon, and he was talking about like how he really keyed into the singer songwriter idea early, and I think it was that early Elton John album that he had heard where it was just him playing the songs and he said wow you know this is so different from somebody like maybe led zeppelin just going into the studio and we're going to track what we play having you know being in a position where you were that that other member you know where you were people were coming with pieces of songs and they were developing them in the studio yeah it was something he really keyed into and that was an integral part of uh, how billy made those records too and there's a lot to really dive into when it comes to things like that as we've been talking about what we want to cover with this podcast there's just a really seemingly endless amount of things we can get into to all the different tours he's done over the years the albums between fantasies and delusions going all the way back to Attila and the hassles you know there's just so much we can really analyze a little bit and uh you know all the producers like Phil Ramon who he's worked with over the years and while there's been the core who recorded on a lot of these records Billy's played with so many incredible musicians over the years that who each have their own story so there's so much to get into on that aspect yeah it's it's been exciting um you know even just as we're starting and we're outlining all these things and and I've started to do uh just a little bit of research even just for me it's it's been really enlightening and really enjoyable to find these other little details out in these nooks and crannies that i didn't know before and putting them in context and then and then talking with someone like you that has the same passion for it and really getting to bounce it off and and hear it back is pretty interesting and you know i hope that's uh something that that everyone out there as listeners you know feels the same way about that you know this is going to be somewhere where we're going to be chatting about these things and you're going to hear things you know and you'll be like, yeah, I remember that. And and then you're going to get little nuggets of things that you didn't know. And it's hopefully going to you know, help you enjoy an artist that we all love, uh, help you enjoy him even a little more. So there's a lot more to cover in the coming months and hopefully years with this podcast. So we hope you uh, enjoy the ride and stick around with us. You can reach out to us at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com if you want to reach out, say hello any show ideas or suggestions, we'd love to hear them. You can also find us online at glasshousespod.com. And we're on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So just uh, search Glasshouses or Glasshouses Podcast and you'll be able to find us so you can hook up with us there as well. If you enjoy the show, please hit subscribe so you'll get notified when a new episode hits. We'd really appreciate you also leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. We got a lot more coming down the pipeline. So until then, see you next time. We'll see you next time.